Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Military History. This is Bob Wintermute. Today's interview is with Jacqueline Witt, and it's about her recent book, Bringing God to Men. American Military Chaplains and the Vietnam War. Dr. Witt is an assistant professor of strategy at the Air War College, which is part of the Air University at Maxwell Air Force Base, Montgomery, Alabama. She received her doctorate from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and in addition to her work at the Air University, she has taught courses at the United States Military Academy at West Point and serves on the executive committee for American Model United Nations. Jacqueline, welcome to New Books in Military History. Great. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. Great. Um, as a uh, Defense Department employee, you, you have to make a disclaimer, don't you? Yes. This becomes uh, part, of, part of my job. I should say I work for the Air Force, uh, for the Department of Defense, but uh, the book I published and all of the views I'm going to express here today are my own and do not reflect official policy of any of the uh, organizations I am affiliated with otherwise. Okay. So that's that's done. Okay, <laughs> that's out of the way and we can proceed. Absolutely. Okay. Jackie, what, what, Jackie, what prompted you to develop this project? You know, I, I always think origin stories about books are really interesting, and I, I think this one has a, has a fairly neat one. When I first went to graduate school, I thought uh, in my head I was going to write about U.S. Uh, military engagements and military assistance uh, in the Cold War to, to Latin America. So that's what I went to grad school to do, uh, to study, um, and I started writing about it uh, the first year I was there. But then very quickly I discovered that I didn't actually like the topic that I thought I did and that I didn't want to do it anymore. And I couldn't imagine writing a dissertation on it, much less building a career on it. And so I went down to the basement of Davis Library, which is the the library at UNC Chapel Hill, and I just started looking through the government documents there. I think that's, that's testament to my historical sort of proclivities is just go back to the documents. Mm-hmm. And I, I was basically shelf reading and I came across a run of military professional journals 
from the chaplain corps. Uh, these were these happened to be from the 1980s, uh, so just after the Vietnam War, and they were really interesting. They were talking about uh, the the transition to the all volunteer force. They were talking about new challenges with uh, with young soldiers, uh, drug abuse, uh, family relationships, uh, stress after the Vietnam War, and all of these things. And they were talking about how they were as chaplains going to deal with uh, these these pretty significant changes. And I, I thought they were they were simply interesting sort of historical artifacts. So I ran upstairs, and I, I started doing some some searching in the catalog to see if there had any any been anything written about military chaplains about issues of of um, religion in this transition after the Vietnam War, and there hadn't been. Most of what we knew about religion in the Vietnam War centered on anti-war protest, mm-hmm. it seemed. But here was this group of, of people, uh, people of faith, who were, were dealing with the after effects of the Vietnam War and had obviously dealt with the Vietnam War itself. And so I went to my advisor, uh, Richard Cohn, who is a, a saint of a man, mm-hmm. and he said, you have about three weeks to come up with a viable master's thesis topic. Uh, I'll give you that. <laughs> but after that, you've got you've to gotta make a choice one way or the other or, or go with the thing that you know. Yeah. And so... I worked for about three weeks uh, feverishly trying to figure out something to do, and it sort of developed from there. And so it really was a, a serendipitous meeting of finding finding the documents and finding a source that I thought was really interesting, uh, plus the proverbial gap in scholarship that young young scholars and young historians are always looking for and hoping hoping they might stumble across. And I stumbled across one that I think is is both interesting and important. Yeah, that's really the path that so many of us follow. I had the same experience when I was doing my own work. Ultimately, what evolved into a look at public health of the military um, at the turn of the century. Um, with regards to your project, though, did, were there any kind of special challenges that you faced or that you confronted as you began to lay it out, as you went through your research and began to, to write the book? I think the most difficult thing was an was an overwhelming misconception or, or wrong hypothesis that I started with, uh, and that that I think was pretty pervasive, and I think it, it remains perhaps the, the the most common misconception that I have to confront with for readers as well, which is that military chaplains um, operate in worlds that are, that are somehow fundamentally incompatible, that the realm or the world of religion and faith is distinct uh, and and collides problematically with the world of the military and the world of war, the realm mm-hmm. of war. Uh, and, and the reasons for this are pretty, are pretty obvious. Um, in, the, in the New Testament Christian scriptures in particular, the emphasis on peace, on loving one's enemy, and all of those things come to mind very, very easily. And so it seems to set up this natural contrast and this natural conflict that military chaplains have to deal with. So when I went into the project, I went in fully expecting to find lots of um, angst and lots Mm -hmm. of conflict and lots of crises of faith and proverbial dark nights of the soul and chaplains really wrestling with theological issues and and conflicts and questions. And then I just didn't find it. Um, The project actually started with the title, A Crisis of Faith, and it, it kept it for years until probably 
a month before I turned in the final dissertation and realized that that was actually the opposite of what I was actually arguing, uh, which is that there is fundamentally no crisis of faith that these chaplains experience, or at least that most of them do. So I think that you you can have an idea in your head and it can be perfectly logical and perfectly wrong at the same time, just not borne out in the evidence. So that was a challenge both for me and I think it's a challenge for uh, for readers of the book as well. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I, I noticed when I began reading your book was how you, you categorize the chaplain as an individual, but also as part of a group that occupies these different crossroads of constantly negotiated and renegotiated status, obligation, and legitimacy within the military. You know, again, not trying to chew too much, but, you know, in my own book, looking at medical officers at the uh, end of the 19th and the early 20th century, I found a very similar kind of uh, series of conflicts and, and confrontations between medical officers and the military establishment. Can you elaborate on your views about how this takes shape and, and particularly with reference to how it relates to the Vietnam War? Sure. I think the the question of of these dual professional identities, so medical officers, lawyers, uh, chaplains, all of these folks who who belong very clearly to two institutional collective identities have have some of the same challenges. I think for chaplains, the challenges are are perhaps uniquely problematic in that they um, they occupy these these liminal spaces or these crossover spaces where their status is contested. And then if they, if they lose credibility with, with sort of either side, uh, they, they really do run the risk of, um, of becoming ineffective. Yeah. And that's a constant balancing act as well, you know, to, to satisfy these two constituencies I found. Right. And I think when, when you have these competing constituencies and these competing ideas about what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to behave, um, and you, ha- you really do have two different, uh, perhaps, codes of conduct that you're, that you're dealing with, um, and, and people from, from the alternate side don't always understand the institutional pressures and the problems and the challenges uh, that someone on the, on the inside of the military perhaps faces. For, for chaplains, I think the most interesting places of, of this tension, of this conflict, actually occur where, um, where two of their religious ideals uh, sort of come into, come into conflict. So it's not necessarily uh, a military versus religion problem, but actually competing values within, uh, within one system so that there are, are, say, two religious ideals that come uh, come into into play, or two uh, military virtues that come into play and are at conflict with each other that that tend to cause the chaplains the most uh, consternation, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you present in your introduction as well these three archetypes that have captured the public's imagination uh, about the chaplaincy: the saint, the militarist, and the incompetent. Can you can you comment on those? I mean, you know. Are these arbitrary constructions, or, or you know, are they still relevant? You think? Sure. I think uh, if you think about 
when and where you see military chaplains. Uh, the first one that almost always comes to mind is Father Mulcahy from the, <laughs> the movie or the TV show MASH. Jocularity, uh, jocularity. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I, I will admit that I purchased the box set of MASH and watched all 11 seasons in order uh, and, and told myself that it was for dissertation. <laughs> it, was a, it was a really fantastic decision. Um, but so we, we have that image of, of the chaplain. Uh, and actually, I think the, the movie and the TV show present two pretty different images. I'll talk about that in a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also maybe remember the chaplain from the novel Billy Budd. Or uh, there's a chaplain in uh, Full Metal Jacket. Mm-hmm. that, Or there's a chaplain mentioned in Full Metal Jacket. We right. don't actually see him. Uh, so we have these sort of moments where chaplains are, are, are present. And they tend to be sort of in the background. They tend to be secondary characters, uh, but they're they're a constant feature of modern military life, really. Right. And so we have the, these images, and they they tend to to center around these three archetypes. So the first one, the idea of, of the of the saint, right, mm-hmm. who is a willing and sacrificial uh, person who accompanies his troops to the front lines, and who perhaps lays down his, his own life for the protection of, of his soldiers. Um, and we have a couple of, of historical examples that this archetype follows. Uh, there were some chaplains in World War II who were on a troop ship that sank in the North Atlantic, the USS Dorchester. And they, you know, mythically, and, and who knows if the story is, is true or not, but the story goes that the chaplains uh, offered their life jackets to other people on board. They offered their gloves. To, uh, to soldiers who were getting ready to enter the icy waters, and they held hands and they sang uh, hymns as the ship went down. Oh, and there were uh, four chaplains. It was a Catholic, a Jewish chaplain, and two Protestant chaplains. So an ecumenical group uh, who, who in their last moments, tries to provide both physical and spiritual comfort uh, to those around them and, and act sacrificially. So that's one image. Um, and it's a it's a heartwarming image. It's uh, one that certainly has historical uh, truth to it in terms mm-hmm. of, of chaplains behaving in those ways. Uh, but it's it's an incomplete one. And so right. the the alternative image is the is the militarist chaplain, right? This is the chaplain who apocryphally at Pearl Harbor grabs one of the naval guns and says, "Praise the Lord!" and pass the ammunition and starts firing at Japanese aircraft. Uh, this is the the chaplain in full metal jacket who says uh, there will, you know, there'll be a magic show at zero nine thirty, uh, and he'll <laughs> tell you all about uh, how how why God loves Marines, right? Uh, and it's because they they do the the killing for for God, um, and so you have a, the militarist chaplain who is gung ho and one hundred percent on board with the military mission. He conflates patriotism and faith and all of those things. And so again, you have some historical precedent or some historical truth to that, but it's, it's a, it's a much more uncomfortable uh, role. And especially this is the one that, that critics of the chaplaincy really pull out and really pull on. Mm -hmm. And then you have the sort of third model, which is where father Mulcahy comes in, especially from the film version uh, the original film of MASH. And this is the chaplain who's a nice guy. 
everybody kind of likes him, but he is pretty incompetent because he can neither he connects neither with the military side of his culture and institution nor the religious side. Right. Right. So the chaplain is unable to prevent the dentist suicide. He's unable uh, to affect change. He's unable to to really have any sort of notable effect on on his unit. Um, Father Mulcahy in the in the TV series is more is is more interesting and more complicated. Uh, he is, in my mind, one of the one of the chaplains who, who sort of defies some of these archetypes and right. actually presents uh, a much more holistic, complete image of what a chaplain might do. Right? He gambles. He plays poker with the guys, and then also, uh, you know, provides sanctuary to um, to a soldier who's trying to to, to desert, and he's. Uh, constantly trying to to push back on the morality of the of the war, but he understands that there are limits to the to the extent that he can do that. Right. Uh, so, in some ways, the 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 TV version of Father Mul- Father Mulcahy provides, I think, an, an archetypal uh, sort of mm-hmm. ideal type uh, for for a modern military chaplain. Right. Why well, always well, always struck me too about Father Mulcahy is how he comes across as as much of a humanist. As as a secularist um, in his activities and the way he interacts with Hawkeye and the rest of the guys, but then also with uh, the military establishment and the wounded, right. um, which again you, can, you, know, you don't kind of think of that when you think about a chaplain. So. You can tell he's he is a he is a deeply religious man, right? He's a he's a faithful man. He relies on 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 faith and on God. Um, in his in his own sort of personal dealings and personal mm. uh, relationships, but when he when he is trying to counsel or provide advice to say Hawkeye, he he tones it down, right? right. He doesn't. He sort of proverbially meets meets Hawkeye where he is, uh, and doesn't doesn't try to to cram religion down their throats and, and things like that. So he mm-hmm. is he is a presence. Uh, his presence provides. Some stability, some sort of anchoring, uh, some sort of moral grounding to the unit, uh, but it, it it is not necessarily overtly religious at all times. Right, right. Well, I mean, there could be an entire book just about Father Mulcahy. I think, but <laughs> I think so too. I think I may I may go back and and start rewatching the the TV series uh, just just for a fun summer uh, summer project. There you go. There you go. You know, early in the book, you introduced the context of civil religion, which, as I understand it, is the intersection of this um, Judeo-Christian mainstream religious consciousness with the dictates of the Cold War American exceptionalist state. How exactly does this civil religion set the stage for American entanglements abroad in the 50s and 60s? Sure. I think civil religion is a is a really important concept, uh, both in terms of scholarship and in terms of understanding how the um, how the the Cold War era actually evolved uh, in terms of America's interactions abroad and with with religion within the armed forces. What I think we see in the 1950s, and this is this is a pretty common story for for American history, is that there is. Um, a, a sort of patina of consensus that builds up in this Cold War uh, anti-communist rhetoric, and it is infused with religious language and religious sentiment that is broadly Judeo-Christian, uh, broadly based in in a in a common understanding 
that religion uh, provides moral grounding, it provides moral guidance, and that the United States uh, is an exemplar of both religious freedoms but also of uh, a religious heritage. And that what that does for the United States is to give it authority and credibility in some of its actions abroad. And at home, it gives people a, a common identity. For Americans, um, because it is a multiracial, multi-ethnic state, um, anytime you can find something where relatively diverse groups can come together and find something to agree on, um, the, the chances are that, that public uh, officials, politicians, uh, religious leaders sort of center around that and, and right. clomp onto that. And so it provides a, a common language for, for the early Cold War period, and it sets the stage very nicely for some of the interventions that America wants to, to participate in abroad. The, the problem, and I think the problem that we see in Vietnam is that, in fact, what looked to be consensus was a sort of hodgepodge of ideas and beliefs um, using common language, but undergirded by very different values and very different uh, philosophies. Mm -hmm. And so people were using the same words to talk about very, very different things. And so on one hand, you have um, sort of conservative, um, more hawkish, Types who are talking about American exceptionalism in uh, in sort of crusading ways, and you have uh, more dovish or more liberal types who are talking about American exceptionalism, meaning very very different things, simply as being an exemplar, but not necessarily needing to to spread it abroad. Right. Or you have um, American conservatives who are speaking about religion um, with theologically with theological specificity and liberals talking about religion in a in a very inclusive uh, non-specific way and so what Vietnam does is it really brings some of those conflicts to the to the fore and so simply using the same language doesn't suffice uh, to, to hold to hold the center together right. anymore and so you see I think a, a disambiguation of civil religious language and civil religious values um, to really to set apart uh, two emerging sides of, of an American political system that's going to, to start becoming polarized and, and continue to do so well into the 21st century. Mm -hmm. What was the Defense Department's posture with regard to the chaplaincy at the onset of the Cold War? And one of the things I'm thinking of is, you know, was there any particular denomination that was favored over others or any particular outlook that was favored over others? Sure, that's a great question. So early on, the chat, and this, this is developing mostly out of practice rather than out of, out of policy. So practice gets written into policy rather than policy driving the practice. Early on, the chaplaincy was dominated by... Uh, what we would consider the, the mainline Christian denominations, and primarily by uh, Episcopalians in particular. Mm -hmm. This was this was a, a hundred year tradition at least, and so the chaplaincy the chaplains came from the largest 
most mainstream American denominations. They tended to be fairly moderate in their views, and they tended um, to to be relatively coherent and consistent even across denominational lines, mm-hmm. so that you could they were roughly interchangeable. Um, but the and then you also had a, a really strong contingent all the way across as Catholic chaplains. So throughout the the Cold War, what we see is at the beginning a very loose um, sort of quota system that says our chaplain mm-hmm. corps should basically reflect the religious makeup of the United States. So each church um, in a sort of an, uh, annual report or sort of census-like thing reports their membership and, and chaplain billets are roughly allocated on that on that basis. So you're supposed to have about one-third Catholic chaplains, one-third um, of these mainline Protestant chaplains or liturgical Protestants, uh, so Episcopalians, Presbyterians, uh, Lutherans, etc. Mm-hmm. And then a- about one-third uh, who are from evangelical churches, free churches, or other, uh, other religions. Right. And so that would include, uh, say, some of your Baptist denominations, um, your Pentecostal denominations, more conservative uh, evangelical groups, but also uh, groups like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, mm-hmm. so sort of everything else. Yeah, you describe you know, the appearance of the Mormon chaplains as kind of like being a source of some internal conflict with the chaplaincy. I mean, I imagine that also mirrors the conflicts within mainstream Christian um denominations about the legitimacy of Mormons. Absolutely, because if you, because chaplains are basically interchangeable um, once they're within these groups, right? So if you have a Catholic chaplain, you can send him anywhere. Mm-hmm. If you have a, a, a Protestant chaplain, he can fill any Protestant billet that you, that you need. Mm-hmm. And so the dispute over Mormon chaplains is whether they rightly count as sort of Protestant everything else chaplains. Because if they do, they can be sent anywhere anywhere that one is needed, right? Um, and they may fill fill a specific billet uh, in which there are no other Protestant chaplains around. If they aren't, if they are separated, um, sort of doctrinally from from that mass of every everything else chaplains, then you have to you have to account for that in your personnel systems and things like that. It's just more complicated. Mm-hmm. And so and the, the, the complications are coming from both sides. Um, there are both Christian chaplains who don't wish to see Mormons fill those billets because they think um, Christian soldiers um, or sailors' needs are, needs are going to go unmet. But you also have limitations on the LDS chaplains uh, because they can't perform... Christian sacraments for everyone else, right? Right. Uh, they can't. They can't give. It's not an open communion. They can't give communion uh, to to other people, and so there are limitations on both sides. And the dispute is um, is is quite vocal and and pretty antagonistic for quite a while. Uh, it it tends to it recedes somewhat after the Vietnam War, uh, as as the number of denominations who send chaplains to the military increases and they, and they figure out how best to deal with um, with these sort of theological and doctrinal differences that, that place limitations on chaplains. And mm-hmm. so the likelihood that you would see a Mormon chaplain stationed somewhere 
where there wasn't also a Protestant chaplain um, from a from a mainline denomination or something would be would be quite rare. Mm-hmm. But it's a it's a it's a major conversation, and there are conversations that aren't unlike what what you have when you integrate Jewish chaplains right. or Muslim chaplains or, or other uh, other faith groups as well. And that, that raises two other questions I had too. I mean, the first would be how represented were, or what kind of representation or efforts were made to accommodate African American uh, denominations, African American Protestant denominations. And then at the same time, you know, what's the formal position of the American Jewish congregations with reference sure. to the military? Those are, those are, I think, two really good questions. The question about African Americans is, on one hand, easy to answer at a very generic, broad level and very difficult to answer at a specific level. Um, the American churches do, uh, historically black churches, do send chaplains, and they um, usually are, are, are black chaplains. Right. The difficulty is in, one, telling actually who they are and where they were. Um, the, the personnel records don't generally record a chaplain's race, and so it's very difficult to tell exactly how many uh, black chaplains uh, deployed to Vietnam, exactly how black soldiers um, felt about their white chaplains. Races is very, very rarely mentioned in uh, either the official records or the, the sort of memoirists and, and um, diary records that we have from Vietnam. So unless a chaplain is from a historically black church, it's very difficult to tell what his race would have been. Right. We do know that the historically black churches were consistently on the low end of their of their quotas, that the chaplain corps, especially early on, had great difficulty in filling uh, some of the some of the billets that were sort of theoretically assigned to the historically black churches. Mm-hmm. Um, the reasons for that is are, are sort of unclear. my My hunch is that the black church at the time was was so intently focused on uh, civil rights, particularly in the '60s, um, that that sort of sending sending ministers away, and that was often how it was was viewed, was that the, that people sent to the chaplaincy or, or chaplains were somehow leaving uh, leaving the ministry to go do something else. That that was probably not uh, not a choice that was looked upon terribly favorably. On the so you see almost the exact opposite story for Jewish chaplains. Mm-hmm. Uh, the number of Jews in the American military, in terms of a percentage, is, is very very low. Um, but the number of Jewish chaplains is relatively high. It, um, it's much higher than the proportion of, of Jewish personnel, right. and that has been the case uh, for a couple hundred years. In all honesty. Uh, or not quite a not quite a since the Civil War, there right. have been more Jewish chaplains than there have been Jews in the military, and so the um, the National Jewish Welfare Board and other um, Jewish civic organizations and uh, sort of parachurch organizations think that serving Jews within the military is highly important. They place a significant amount of emphasis on it. They uh, they basically drafted rabbis uh, at some points during the war uh, and sent them sent them specifically to the military. They huh. published an incredible number of, uh, of publications of guides for lay leaders. 
uh, in the Jewish community and their Jewish chaplains work very, very hard to, to gather Jewish personnel in and to maintain a strong Jewish identity even when they are deployed. So you see two very different uh, approaches to, to how to accommodate, um, in one case, a minority religious view, and then another, uh, in, the, in the other case, uh, to, uh, to accommodate um, minority uh, racial and ethnic groups mm-hmm. within, within the military. Well, let's uh, shift gears a little bit, focusing then more on Vietnam itself. And, you know, of course, several questions before we even enter the war is, you know, one of them would be, you know, how exactly did the mainstream American religious community view what was taking shape in Vietnam before 1964. And I guess the tack onto that is, you know, is there a consensus one way or another regarding support for the M regime? And, you know, the Catholics have a stronger view in this regard than Protestants. Sure. So before 1964, American religious communities are broadly supportive of U.S. uh, actions in, in Vietnam. Uh, for the most part, you're going to see religious groups uh, basically tracking and, and going in parallel with, with broader public opinion. Uh, in some ways, that's, that's, I think, unsurprising. What you, what you do see is a difference in... You do see a difference in American Catholic communities and American Protestant communities. Catholics tend to be much um, stronger and much more vocal uh-huh. in their support of the uh, the ZM regime because of his his ties to the the U.S. Catholic community right. in particular. Uh, so that's that's fairly clear. On the Protestant side, you do see a conservative liberal divide starting to happen um, in the in the mid to late '60s. By the by the Tet Offensive by the late '60s, it's it's pretty well established that the the liberal churches are going to take an anti-war position. Uh, But up through the 60s, you see um, lots of national conventions that pass peace resolutions. Everybody says we'd prefer peace, but, you know, if if violence is necessary, we'll support U.S. troops and soldiers and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And you see a broad support for uh, the freedom of, of religion, which which people agree is, is being diminished in, in Vietnam. So uh, you, do see, you do see support for the war in American religious communities. Um, and that, that divide does, I think, happen uh, in, the, in the late 60s. And there are, there are other, other authors who have written much more, in much more detail uh, than, than what I do about these specific inter-religious debates Right. That are happening in in home front communities, uh, and I think it's part of uh, a much broader trend, which I think is is very good for Vietnam War scholarship, uh, looking at these home front connections and these home front debates, and understanding that they are much more complicated than uh, sort of simply being liberal anti war views and, and conservative pro war views, mm-hmm. but they're much more nuanced uh, and much more complicated than we perhaps understood even even 10 or 15 years ago. Right, right. What were the criteria that were used to select chaplains for service in Vietnam? Sure. Chaplains uh, have, to, have to basically meet two sets of requirements. They have to meet 
military requirements as well as uh, religious or ecclesial requirements. For the military, chaplains have to meet the basic uh, standards for, for officers. So they have to pass a, pass the physical exams. They have to meet height and weight restrictions, um, eyesight, things like that, and age. Now, at some points during the Vietnam War, some of those requirements are, are waivered. Chaplains get waivers for them. Mm-hmm. So for a while, uh, the Army in particular, looking for Catholic chaplains, lets older chaplains in. Or they will waive um, a height or weight requirement in order to get uh, the the type of chaplain that is that is needed. Mm-hmm. That's relatively rare, but it does happen. Uh, on the religious side, you have to be endorsed by uh, by an endorsing agency, which is approved by the military, and they get to set their own standards. Usually, the standard is that the chaplain has to have at least two years of pastoral experience leading a, a civilian congregation. They have to have a, a graduate degree, uh, a master's of divinity degree, or a similar degree in, say, psychology or counseling or something like that. Mm-hmm. If the church doesn't have theological education, uh, for example, the, the Mormons uh, don't have a formal theological seminary uh, type degree, but they're their chaplains will have degrees in counseling or psychology or something. So you have you have requirements from both sides. Some churches require chaplains sign, say, a statement of, of faith and belief. Others don't. Uh, so it's widely varying on that. But if right. you don't meet both sets of requirements, uh, you you are ineligible for chaplain service. What about in the case of conscription? I mean, you mentioned that um, rabbis were subject to conscription. I mean, the first case, first question, I guess, would be, were other denominations subject to conscription? And did that alter then the um, the formula for consideration? Well, so when I say conscription, they were basically conscripted by their religious community. Oh, okay. So it's okay. a clergy are all exempt uh, from from the draft. I thought uh, so, as, yeah. As are seminary students. Right. So uh, so that's, that was a... a a sort of misspeaking on, on my side, but they are rabbis are basically drafted into service by their religious community right. and told you will go serve as a chaplain. Okay. Okay. Um, and so what this means is that, that the chaplains I'm talking about in the book are all really with very few exceptions are all, all self-selected. None of them had to go to Vietnam. None okay. of them had to be military chaplains. Uh, again, with the exception of those couple, um, a few rabbis, a handful. Okay, okay. Um, and so what this, I think what this does, with, as with any self-selected group, it by and large weeds out anyone who was, who simply couldn't in good conscience serve in the military. It, mm-hmm. it takes away an, an entire question even to be asked because the people most likely to ask the question would have never been military chaplains in the first Okay. Okay. How do the chaplains interact with the local population once they arrived? Sure. Uh, it, again, it, it varied widely. It depended on where chaplains were based. It depended on when they were serving there. Of course, the Vietnam War is very, very long, and so uh, chaplain interactions with locals in, say, 60 are going to be quite different than they will be in 1972. Mm-hmm. 
if you're down in the Delta, it's going to be a little bit different than if you're up near the DMZ. So the, the, the wishy-washy answer is it depends. Uh, <laughs> the more specific answer is that most chaplains thought that developing ties with the religious community or the community at large in Vietnam was an important part of both their work as a minister, but also an important part of the American military mission. And so chaplains would link up uh, with their units to do civil action programs. They would link up, uh, they would help put their, their units in touch with say orphanages or schools. Right. Uh, And they would do projects there, whether that be digging wells or health clinics or or building um, schools. Lots of examples of of chaplains taking up offering, uh, offering money to to buy chickens, uh, to provide clothes and supplies for for schools and orphanages and for local churches as well. I'm sure they're they're also actively involved in the Hamlet project, you know, the the resettlement projects. Yeah, to some extent. And chaplains um, tended to to want to act in in more unofficial capacities in in forming these relationships because they were uh, they were a little bit wary of creating long term official relationships that couldn't be sustained over time. Right. Uh, and so chaplains tend to act in these unofficial capacities, but they do participate in in some of the official programs as well. Okay. Were they considered the target by the NLF or, or the NVA? Were they treated as, as non-combatants? Uh, so the, the laws of war say chaplains are non-combatants, and the U.S. Uh, does take measures to make sure that they are fulfilling their Geneva Convention requirements. But it is a pretty significant worry of American chaplains that if they are captured, mm-hmm. uh, that they will be that they will be killed as basically a political officer, uh, right? In, in the army. Now we don't we don't really have much evidence of this actually happening, mm-hmm. um, and so it is it widely operates in the in the realm of sort of myth about what what might happen, right. how the enemy might treat chaplains. And- so for the most part, the North, you know, respected the 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 the, um, the sanctity of the chaplaincy. As as far as as far as the the documents allow us to tell at this point. So I, again, it's it's hard to say with with 100% certainty, uh, but you also see relatively few chaplains taken prisoner. Um, uh-huh. And I think part of this is, is, is protective measures that the U.S. takes. Uh, there are commanders, if they are concerned about chaplains being taken prisoner, uh, then they tend to, to do one of two things. Either they will allow a chaplain to carry a weapon uh, for self-defense and things like that, mm-hmm. or they will not allow the chaplain to go out on the front lines, and they'll keep the chaplain back at headquarters or at a hospital or something like right. that where it's easier to protect him. Those are decisions that individual chaplains and individual commanders make, uh, you know, on a, on a day-to-day mission-to-mission basis about the chaplain's security, what the risk to the unit is if mm-hmm. an unarmed chaplain is with them. Uh, and, and people, they come to a wide variety of, of answers about how best to, uh, to deal with the, the potential of being taken prisoner, being being captured. Okay, okay. How, how does the American rank and file respond to the presence and activities of the chaplains in Vietnam? So, for the most part, American soldiers, airmen, sailors, and Marines tend. I think they appreciate chaplains being there, um, but 
they they tend to they don't tend to see them as as a decisive factor in either their morale or their well-being or in their uh, in in their ability to accomplish the military mission. I think chaplains provide a link uh, to to home, a link to sort of comforting uh, traditions that they experienced, um, whether that be singing familiar hymns or, or receiving mm-hmm. communion. And so what we see from, from post-war surveys, and I also see it in the memoir literature and, and diaries and letters, are soldiers being deeply appreciative of the chaplain's presence, but talking very, very little about uh, anything uh, overtly or specifically theological or religious that the that the chaplains did. Right. And so you see, for example, you know, a chaplain will visit a, an outpost, and everyone in the unit will come to the service, regardless of whether they are religious or not. It provides them a break. It provides them some solace and some sense of community. But the religious, the specific religious content uh, in combat is is relatively low. Right. It's it's much more about presence and about sense of community than it is about a specific religious idea or religious belief. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, as a matter of course, you know, chaplains are frequently placed in conflicting circumstances in in wartime. You know, I'm I'm thinking of. Issues with staff off, you know, they're considered as staff officers who are responsible to line or other staff superiors. But then, as you note as well, they're also the primary advocates for disaffected soldiers in all grades. Mm-hmm. You know, do we see, are there clear cases of a personal internal conflict within or among chaplains over balancing these, these types of relationships? Again, I think chaplains feel most conflicted when when two sort of religious dictates are are rubbing up against each other or two military dictates are rubbing up against each other. Mm-hmm. So these are the conflicts that I think are most likely to cause chaplains uh, some some sort of angst, right? Is when they understand their duty as as a staff officer to the commander to uphold uh, their their oath and things like that. But they mm-hmm. they do also see them themselves structurally in a position to advocate for uh, for the disaffected, for uh, soldiers who are disconnected or having difficulty adjusting or things like that. Mm-hmm. And so I do think they 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 feel conflict uh, within within those uh, within those terms. On the religious side, you, I think you have a similar uh, a similar thing where they are on one hand supposed to, uh, uphold the the morality, the the virtue, the um, the the religious dictates of their community, and at the mm-hmm. same time they are supposed to display uh, empathy and compassion, um, and and be present for for soldiers. And they understand that those two can sometimes uh, can sometimes come into come into conflict. So it's right. when it's when those it's not necessarily a military religious problem. It's, I think, conflict uh, internal to institutions and, and organizations that can cause chaplains, I think, the most significant psychological. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, do they res- how do they respond to the growing use of, of 
marijuana and the harder drugs, narcotics in the ranks? I mean, do they see it as a personal failing on the part of the soldier? Do they see it as, you know, indicative of a larger rot in the institution? I think, especially late in the war, so by the by the time uh, 1970 uh, through 73 roll around, chaplains are are quite concerned with what they see as sort of moral rot within the military. They mm-hmm. tend to, they again, this is this is speaking very broadly. They tend to peg it to institutional and systemic concerns mm-hmm. rather than personal moral failings. Uh, which I think is which I think is interesting. I think that um, is not going to be the language um, used by by many religious communities uh, in the later seventies and into the nineteen eighties. Yeah. Um, where where that's a where it's a, a sign of of moral failure or character failure. Rather, they see they see the institutional pressures. They see uh, the the degradation that that war has caused. Right. And they tend to peg it. To peg it there. Similarly, if you look at chaplains' post-war dealings, uh, especially for chaplains who were stationed in Germany, uh, with a lot of returning Vietnam veterans, uh, and of course there they have rampant drug use, uh, race riots, and all sorts of all sorts of problems there. Right. The chaplains are identifying institutional uh, and systemic uh, problems that are in some ways indicative of, of broader cultural problems that they see in the United States and a and a moral failing on on the whole sure. rather than rather than on individual soldiers they don't tend to blame individual soldiers for um, for those things mm. what about the responses to you know the claims or, or the the evidence of war atrocities being committed by American troops again how do they uh, respond to that um, on the whole, very badly, um, in that they tend to not respond, uh, and this is, I think, one of the one of the most interesting and one of the most difficult things that I that I wrote about. Um, chaplains do come do confront uh, evidence that American troops are committing uh, war crimes or atrocities, um, and and sort of which which word you use depends on. Um, Sometimes on the on the evidence and the circumstance, and sometimes on, on how you want to uh, whether you want to prosecute them and things like that. Right. Chaplains do do sometimes see evidence of it. They they rarely see it themselves. When they when they witness it themselves, uh, they are more likely uh, to to say something or to do something. Uh-huh. But when they hear about it secondhand, uh, it becomes problematic for them to for them to say anything. Um, the problem tends to be that they they value personal relationships with soldiers. They think their entire credibility, their entire job, is based on their ability yeah. to connect um, at a at a personal level to to soldiers or, or Marines or whomever whomever it is that they are serving. Yeah. And if they say something, then they to to a higher commander. Then their credibility as a as a confidant, their credibility as a counselor, uh, as an empathetic ear will be totally lost. Yeah. And so they are they are deeply concerned with that, and they they frame it in the the realm of um, of pastoral confession and and confidentiality, and they think, and they, and they still do. They think those rules are are. Are set and inviolable, 
um, they they cannot they are unwilling to to bend uh, rules about about confidentiality because if they if they lose that credibility um, they they mm. think they will have no more no more ministry at all right. I mean, it's it's so interesting when you when you describe it. You're also talking about a community then who, at the same time as, as you discussed, they're they're trying to conduct outreach to the local population as well. I mean, I'm just thinking about the internal conflicts that this creates. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. It's hugely problematic. Not only for for that reason, right? That they're trying to to conduct outreach. Um, that they have specific examples of 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 American soldiers. Uh, breaking down those relationships that are that they're trying to build up, uh, they have the issue of their relationships with American uh, service members, and then they have their their duty to to commanding officers. And these these things uh, often do, I think, require them to uh, to make really uncomfortable decisions. Uh, sometimes they they have an overwhelming sense that their commander doesn't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. Right, and so if mm-hmm. the commander wants to look the other way, and the chaplain is con- constantly bringing it up, right, talking about uh, potential atrocities or potential, um, he becomes a squeaky wheel, and, yeah. and, and, and he loses his credibility with the commander. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how exactly the chaplain is supposed to navigate it is is quite unclear. They operate with almost no guidance on the issue. They operate with with very little. Um, there's very little talk about it. There's very little documentation or yeah. writing or, you know, mem- clearly you don't write this sort of thing down. And so they, they're, they're for the most part, totally on their own. And I think ultimately many of them are after the war, deeply troubled by the decisions they made during wartime. Well, I was going to say, I mean, yeah, I'm sorry. Say, I wish the most and say, I wish I had said something. I should have said something. Uh, I just, I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to deal with it, and so I think you, you do see a clear example of chaplains making, um, at best, moral, morally suspect yeah. decisions. Um, I don't think it's fair to them to say that they were that they had forsaken their religious duty or their religious identity um, by making those decisions. I think they were. I think they were using a different. A different frame of reference. They were emphasizing their their pastoral role, mm-hmm. their um, their institutional role um, as a minister to to American service members and to and to an American um, sort of institution that wasn't um, that in which they wouldn't be effective if right. they if they were to to speak loudly and and to vocalize um, their their moral misgivings about the conduct of the war. Do we have any sense of, I mean, I, again, I don't want to overdraw this, this issue. There's a couple of questions I have, but I, again, it's so fascinating. Is there any sense of how many chaplains would have sought counseling or would have considered them or have reported themselves as, you know, being afflicted with PTSD even years after? I mean, I don't know how you would quantify that, but it just strikes me as for them such an eternal crisis that yeah. they they couldn't come through it unscathed, just regardless of their faith. Difficult to quantify. I think what we what we do see, and the, the, these are based on patterns of reading, lots of survey data, lots of 
again, memoirs and, and diaries and, and looking at, at post-war conferences and things like that. Chaplains deal with the trauma of a war on the whole better than uh, their enlisted uh, counterparts for sure mm-hmm. and better than the officer corps at large. And the psychologist will tell us that this is because chaplains have more coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. They have more strategies in terms of resilience and things like that. Right. Um, and so, so they're better able to deal with it. Chaplains tend to write a lot during their deployments. Uh, they, they, so they're basically practicing uh, in mm-hmm. the tradition of spiritual autobiography or, or trauma right. writing, which we know is, is therapeutic. Uh, they tend to have more religious resources. They tend to have a sort of deeper understanding of, of theology and faith. And they also tend to be older, right? which helps their right. resiliency. On the flip side, if a chaplain does experience um, that intense conflict, that intense crisis of faith, it can be it can be deeply damaging. Yeah. I only I only have a couple of examples of that of that happening where a chaplain sort of loses his faith or walks away from the church or is unable to uh, to to deal with uh, with with his experiences during the war. But mm-hmm. those examples are pretty striking. Um, right. the, um, and they're and they're extreme. Most chaplains though stay in the ministry. Most chaplains uh, continue to be ardent practitioners of their mm-hmm. faith. They tend uh, to they they tend to view things through a spiritual lens. They tend to see their time in Vietnam as being part of a, a greater plan, even if they think the Vietnam War itself was wrong and immoral and problematic. Right. Uh, they they as a group find uh, redemption in in their experience, which I think is to me was both interesting and unexpected. Mm-hmm. Um, because you you expect them to to really struggle with some of these conflicts, and they they tend to work them out uh, in in religiously specific ways that that make sense of of the war and their place in it. Right. You know, you know it's a growing influence. We're moving to after the war now. Um, you know it's growing influence of conservative evangelical denominations after Vietnam in the chaplaincy. Do you think that was a result of the war itself or did that reflect other trends in society? I think it's for the most part reflecting other, other trends, but I think the war uh, amplifies some of those trends. Mm-hmm. So the, um, the, the so-called rise of the religious right, um, this story I think basically parallels that it doesn't predate it or anything mm-hmm. like that. But what the war does is it very Starkly um, puts sort of puts people into into camps, right. and what we see by the end of the war is that liberal and mainline churches, which have taken institutional stands against the war by the by the late sixties and early seventies, basically stop sending military chaplains um, to serve in Vietnam. They uh, they they stop coming to the fight. It's not a fight that they lose, they just stop showing up. They basically mm-hmm. forfeit and cede the ground. And so what you, what you see over time is a diminishment of the quota system because mainline churches can't fill their billets. Catholic churches 
are having difficulty filling Catholic chaplain positions, mm-hmm. and you have evangelical, more conservative uh, groups who are who are clamoring, banging at the door to get more chaplains in, and they make a decision that having having a chaplain is more important than having a chaplain of a specific denomination. Mm-hmm. And so you see a huge influx um, in terms of, of numbers of conservative and evangelical groups um, that's pretty firmly established by the mid-70s, so in that immediate post-war era. And so the Vietnam War basically takes liberal and mainline uh, chaplains out of this ongoing conversation mm-hmm. that's happening nationally, and it takes them out of the conversation that's happening specifically within within the military. Mm-hmm. And it takes years. It's not until really probably the last five years, uh, so well into the 21st century, that liberal and mainline churches start to reverse this trend and reverse this decision and actually start actively right. sending chaplains back into the military and going right. we should have we should have never given up that given up that ground and so now they are they're some of them are slowly trying to claw some of that back right and it's a, certainly a generational uh change i mean it seems like an older generation that was aware of or the that they immediately re, uh responded to the vietnam war had to age and and clear out of the way i guess i don't know yeah i think that's i think that's part of it i think um the the liberal strand of american religion has always wanted to play a more prophetic role in society in terms of speaking truth to power Mm -hmm. um calling out sort of moral failings and things like that that's a difficult role to play in the military for all the reasons that we've talked about um, in the military, chaplains tend to play a, a pastoral role. They tend to play a priestly role. Uh, if you sort of divide it into Max Weber's categories, they are um, they're there to provide comfort and to provide religious services and, and sacraments to mm-hmm. to the people who are there. And so, it's a tradition that that liberal churches and mainline churches now are, are starting to sort of pick back up on. And to understand the, the difficulty of prophetic ministry mm-hmm. within within the chaplaincy as it's constituted now, um, and wanting to wanting to really get back uh, get back in mm-hmm. and try to try to affect um, social change and 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 sort of shift the the worldview. Of right. some, of the, some of the chaplains. Yeah, exert a more moderating influence. Yeah, a more a more moderate voice, and you have. The demographic changes uh, with the all-volunteer force in the mid-70s and then the mm-hmm. demographic changes that continue now where for enlisted personnel in particular, more and more and more of them are unaffiliated with a church tradition. They're unaffiliated with a specific religious denomination. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will call themselves spiritual or not, but not religious. Or they'll say, I'm, I'm sort of vaguely Christian. Um, but don't have anything in don't have any particular religious belief. Um, mm-hmm. This is what the the demographers call the rise of the nuns in <laughs> OEF right. um, broadly in society, and the number of those within the military is growing very very rapidly. Mm-hmm. Some estimates are, are that today it's between you know between twenty five and thirty uh, percent are unaffiliated, and so the interestingly. 
the religious denominations who are most amenable to the idea of a, of a sort of generic version of spirituality or a more universalist uh, bent um, tend to come from the mainline and liberal side of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And they're precisely the, the ones who haven't had chaplains in the military for, or not many chaplains. It's not that there were zero, there were just very few. Right. Um, and so they are, they're starting to see that, that again, that seeding the field to the, to the more conservative side as problematic. And so they're actively trying to reverse some of those, some of those decisions. Okay. Well, Jacqueline, we're nearing the end of the interview. And as a result, there are those the last two questions I asked that aren't necessarily related to your book um, that we ask everybody. And I guess, I guess first, um, what are you reading now? What, what kind of nonfiction are you engrossed by that's sure. not well, work-related? <laughs> well, the not work-related is, is tough. I have, um, in the last two years, I've become a professor of security studies and strategy, so my history reading has has suffered greatly. Um, <laughs> but I am, the books I've got, oh, I'll just say the books I've got on my desk right now. I have um, The Politics of American Foreign Policy by uh, Peter Grice. Oh, okay. Uh, and this one, as I in another course, it is sort of work-related, but I think it's interesting. Uh, we talk a lot about uh, political polarization in, in the United States, um, and this is with our international officers that I teach. And so this one is about how ideology, liberal and conservative ideology, affects American foreign policy. Mm-hmm. So that's been an interesting read of late. And then I also have a uh, book of essays, which I'm enjoying quite a lot, by Jill Lepore, oh. The Story of America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is about uh, about different myths and, and literally stories that we tell about American history and, and how it winds the past and the present uh, together. So I'm enjoying that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And then Great. the last one I have on my desk is uh, called The Unwinding by George Packer. So this is another collection of essays um, from from a from a journalist and sort of pundit commentator about uh, recent American history, about American democracy, and uh, what what that might mean for the current state of of affairs. That's my light summer reading. <laughs> okay, take it to the beach with you when you go. Absolutely. They're all paperback, so it's fine. It's good, good, good. The second question is: What what are you thinking about for your next project? Sure, I've got two things sort of uh, cooking right now. One is uh, is a collection of, of short essays that I'm writing about sort of updating what I what I wrote in the book uh, about religion and the contemporary American military. So talking about issues of religious freedom, of establishment, of minority religions in the military. So looking at the treatment of, say, Sikhs or Wiccans, um, looking at the contemporary chaplain corps, looking at the end of Don't Ask, Don't Tell and how that has played out. So just sort of short uh, short things. And I'm, I'm slowly but surely working away on those. And then the second project is, is much broader and much more conceptual but it has to do with uh, the relationship of, of narrative and storytelling to the creation of American strategy, mm. thinking about the way that we frame conflict, the way that we frame uh, strategic choices in, in, in narrative form and how that affects and, and shapes uh, our foreign policy choices that we, that we seem to have in front of us. Right. I think storytelling is a pretty powerful 
pretty powerful tool that humans use to make sense of the world around us. And I think by by understanding the stories that we choose to tell, by understanding uh, the narrative frameworks that we use, we uh, can can start to to see how how strategy is is formed and, and what the consequences of those of those various stories we tell are. Wow. Uh, because for every story we we choose to tell, for every story about uh, about the, the communist menace or about terrorism or whatever, we are actively choosing not to tell a myriad of other stories mm-hmm. uh, that are that are potentially out there. Well, that so sounds like you're taking a page. The other, that's the other thing. Wow, it sounds like you're taking a page out of Frank Castigliola's book with that. Yes, that's great. a little bit. But there's lots of there's lots of interesting stuff. There's political scientists working on some of the stuff. There's uh-huh. uh, literary theory, and and it's it's been very exciting and interdisciplinary, and the perfect sort of second second project. Well, that is that's a book I really look forward to reading. I hope I can I can tell so we'll, we'll we'll an see, interview we'll on see when I can get a, We'll see when I can get a sabbatical. That's the <laughs> that's the that's the next challenge. Okay. Well, let's hope that doesn't take too long. Jacqueline, thank you very much for joining me today. Absolutely. Um, It's been a pleasure. That's great. And on behalf of New Books in Military History, this is Bob Wintermute thanking all of our listeners for tuning in. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.